Hi listeners, Alex here, assistant producer for the Sausage of Science podcast. Before we begin, a quick note of warning. This week's episode contains some explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. pop-ups that seem new from Riverside, now telling me I'm being recorded, which I already agreed to, but has decided to tell me again. I see. Interesting. I, I also have pop-ups. Mine are saying, please keep this page open. Also, your interviewee is waiting in the waiting room. Maybe you should stop talking about random stuff and get to your interviewing. We could do that. Shall we do that? No, no. I want to ask... Before we start that, I you just completed a big conference, did you not? You just hosted a conference? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about big. Like, when you think of, like, the AABAs and HBAs, it's not, not that sizable. Well, I but- hosted conferences before, and anything, when you do it by yourself or just with a few people on your campus, it's big. So Organizing, hosting, and then intellectually engaging in a conference all at once? I mean, the worst part is the intellectually engaging. That just makes my brain hurt. Like, no one should have to do that. I think I averaged, like, three hours of sleep each night. I know the second year I hosted a conference, I did not present anything because the intellectual engagement was more than I could take on on top of everything else. So so what was this interesting, fascinating thing that you held at Notre Dame, Notre Dame? And Notre Dame was kind enough to fund this conference, so I should also put that out there. So this conference was called Strong as Feminist. And when you see it, it's spelled strong, A, parentheses, S, F, these eminence. So basically as strong as fuck. So expletive warning for this episode as well. And this was technically supposed to take place like 18 months ago, but because of the pandemic, everything got pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. It was technically supposed to take place in late March of 2020. Katie Hishmanek, who is a culture anthropologist over at CUNY Brooklyn, she and I actually went to grad school together, but we overlapped by a year. She basically finished up as I was coming in. But she originally looked at hip hop and cool stuff with that. And then she has since moved in kind of anthropology of sports and, and looking at and critiquing CrossFit. And someone, I think it was Libby Kogo, when I was writing up that Sapiens piece about my powerlifting experience, she's like, you should talk to Katie. And I'm like, oh shit, I should totally talk to Katie. So I emailed Katie and told her about all this. And it's basically led to a bunch of fun collaborations. And she said she and some colleagues were putting together an edited volume called Strong as Feminist. And she wanted me to contribute based on that sapiens piece. And I said, yeah, sure. And then having just been new to Notre Dame at the time, learned that there are a bunch of lovely pots of internal funds to hold on-campus conferences where you can workshop, say, an edited volume and things like that as well as do like other public events. And so see little leprechauns with little pots of funds around Notre Dame. Anyway, so I applied, got the money, and then I had a bunch of support from departments throughout campus. And then it got delayed for a year and a half because of COVID. And so it finally happened just last week. I still haven't fully recovered. We did a series of flash talks and then we did this interactive installment where we actually got people up and lifting weights and doing various physical activities. So it went well. It was also emotionally exhausting because of the recent news about me never being able to power lift again. It was both horrible at first, but then kind of healing being with all of these amazing feminist lifting women. It was an uplifting group and a very supportive group to be a part of. But anyway, now people want this to be an annual thing and like, whoa, and 
doing all of this, plus having to seek out funds, make this thing go through always. So yeah, if somebody is out there and wants to just give me money to do this, sure. But I've got enough on my plate. Well, speaking of strong AF, I think we have a strong as feminist researcher in the waiting room. We we do. Dr. Aaron Riley is an associate professor of anthropology at San Diego State University. Her research primarily focuses on primate behavioral and ecological flexibility in the face of anthropogenic change and conservation implications of the ecological and cultural interconnections between humans and non-human primates. Her research, which spearheaded the field of ethnoprimatology, reaches multiple fields with notable publications in American Anthropologist, the American Journal of Primatology, Evolutionary Anthropology, Current Zoology, and Oryx. She currently has two ongoing field research projects, the Behavioral Ecology and Ethnoprimatology of Macaque Monkeys in Sulawesi, Indonesia, where she has worked for the past 15 years, and the human-macaque interface along the Silver River in north-central Florida. And the reason that we have her on today is because she has a new book out, yay her, called The Promise of Contemporary Primatology. The book came out in 2019. It's in the same series on Rutledge as the book that Mark Kissel did and that Jada Ben Torres and Gabriel Torres Colon did. Uh, I think it's New Directions of Biocultural anthropology that another guest of ours, Augustine Fuentes, edited. Jeff Peterson did a chapter of this book. Anyway, welcome to the Sausage of Science, Aaron. We like to start the podcast the same way, basically every time. And that's learning a little bit about you and how you got to where you are and and how you got into anthropology. And so tell us a little bit about that journey. Sure. I actually got interested in in anthropology when I was in high school. I, I was able to take this class called Classical Civilizations. And so I was like super fascinated in archaeology. And so when I was choosing kind of undergrad places, I ended up choosing Beloit College, which is quite well known for their anthropology department. But funnily enough, when I got there, instead of taking like the intro to archaeology class, I took a class called the Human Animal, which was the intro to bioanthro class with Dr. Nancy Cresco, who recently just retired. So anyway, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then Over that first year, my mom, being the amazing woman that she was, was like, you need to get some experience and see if this is what you might want to do. So I ended up going on this volunteer dig in Southern Maryland in like the middle of summer when it's like nasty hot. And I hated it. (laughs) What would you be digging in Maryland? I'm curious. What was there? Oh, it was like historical archaeology, right? You know, and we were just sifting through dirt, you know, and... I was like, I like to read about archaeology, but I don't want to do it. So that kind of made me then kind of refocus on what I had learned in the bioanthro class. And Nancy Crisco was originally trained as a primatologist. So that's kind of how I was like, ooh, I could study living things. That sounds cool. So that's kind of how I got into primatology specifically, right? And that area of anthropology. We said you have a new book out. You probably push back and go, but I put it out in 2019. But, you know, it's still relatively new. I had my intro to BioAnth students read it. Um, Hopefully they will be writing a review of it. But we've also interviewed Jada Ben-Torres, Gabriel Torres-Colón, and Mark Kissel, who have books in the same, I think it's called the New Directions in Biocultural Anthropology series. So my question for you is, how does a book called Promise of Contemporary Primatology fit into a series about biocultural anthropology? 
essentially, when Augustine Fuentes asked me to maybe contribute to that, the premise was kind of new biological anthropology and the ways in which biological anthropologists are interfacing with scholars beyond bioanthro, whether or not it includes other anthropologists or even other disciplines, right? So kind of the motivation was that I had a few years prior in 2013, I had published a paper in American Anthropologist titled Contemporary Primatology in Anthropology Beyond the Epistemological Abyss. And Augustine was encouraging me to basically take that article and kind of expanded into kind of book length manuscripts, which was daunting, but also exciting at the same time, because the manuscript, you know, the old journal article only kind of touched upon some of these kinds of things. Because essentially, you know, one of the arguments in the paper that then becomes a major argument in the book is that it's really challenging the idea that primatology and sociocultural anthropology have nothing in common, right? I see it very differently. And the book gave me much greater space to really articulate that, right? So, and then in, in terms of the title, right, that's where I borrow from Sherry Washburn from his 1973 paper titled The Promise of Primatology, right, where he was kind of articulating like what primatology is, what it could become. So I kind of borrowed that to then be the promise of contemporary primatology. And, and certainly one of the things I acknowledge in the book is that there are many promises, right, that the promise of, of today's primatology is really multifold. But the one that I articulate in the book really is about seeing the ways and recognizing and acting on the ways in which primatology has a place within the broader field of anthropology and not just bioanthro and encouraging emerging scholars and then seasoned scholars to see the value in thinking about the ways that we can intersect with other areas of anthropology and beyond. So we're going to dig in a little bit deeper because we don't often have primatologists on this show because it's the Human Biology Association podcast. And right. so our listener base might not be familiar with, you know, some of the things that you're talking about. And one of them is this kind of subfield within primatology of ethno primatology. And if you can kind of give us a definition and then also what that looks like on the ground, actually collecting data. How does one conduct ethno primatology? So ethnoprimatology, which the term itself was coined in the late 90s by cultural anthropologists, actually, Leslie Sponsel, who basically recognized that primatologists and cultural anthropologists would have this kind of shared mutual interest in thinking about the ways that people, right, as human primates and the non-human primates, that their ecologies are in many ways in many cases, in many areas, shared ecologies, right? So thinking about the ways that their lives intersect. And so that's what the field has become, right? It's really about looking at the ways in which people and non-human primates, how they interconnect both kind of in terms of their ecologies, but then also in terms of cultural dimensions, right? So the ways in which primates figure into the mythology and folklore, right? And then ultimately then, like maybe, you know, there's an applied dimension to it in terms of thinking about how these interconnections can affect conservation and management concerns. If you're doing ethnoprimatology, you know, usually what you have is a, a very integrative methodological uh, background, and, and that's what you're doing in the field. So it often involves doing kind of classic primatology in the sense of doing behavioral observations using ethological techniques, but then there's a human dimension to it. And so that can either involve observing human behavior, right, using some similar techniques in ethology, but it can also involve more ethnographic field methods like participant observation and structured interviews and unstructured interviews, focus groups, things like that, right, to get at people's knowledge, perceptions, and so forth. 
So it ends up being very integrative in terms of its methodology and also right backing up a little bit in terms of its theoretical framework, right? Many of us draw from kind of standard theoretical framework in primatology, which would be kind of evolutionary theory, but also recognizing that other theoretical frameworks are useful in helping us think about and think through the kinds of questions we're asking and the results that we get. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that Leslie Sponsel was, you said, a cultural anthropologist. I think the same was true of Laurie Cormier, who is down the street from me at uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. And I always kind of thought of her as an outlier because I think I knew you and Augustine and Carolyn Jost Robinson and some other folks first who were venturing down these roads. I realized later on that she was one of the groundbreakers. So I'm sort of curious as to how you see our consideration of primates. And maybe you can speak to your own research experience in this, right? Like you studied primates in Indonesia. You also studied them in Florida. So like What's the disconnect between doing cultural studies that don't involve an ethno-primatological perspective and one that does? If someone's not naturally thinking about a model that includes humans and non-humans, you know, like what should motivate them to think integratively like this? I'm thinking like you could apply a model like this to studying, say, birding in Alabama. We don't have primates, but the same type of approach right? Where humans and non-humans are living together. Is that where we're going? Like this idea that we got to stop studying species by themselves? Yeah. And this is, you know, something that's happening more broadly, for example, in behavioral ecology, right? I mean, that's why it's been so interesting to see, I wouldn't say so much now, but there was initially like this resistance to the idea of studying primates in anthropogenic places as if, oh, well, these are distorted settings, you know, humans mess everything up. And so, but this is the reality. And in some cases, many primates have been living in proximity to various forms of hominins for millennia, right? So, and then to see these kinds of parallel things coming out in behavioral ecology, where people are recognizing the importance of studying, you know, for other wildlife, right, species, as you can still ask evolutionary questions, right? But it's about understanding adaptability in current times. I think that with primatologists and primatology more specifically, there are many people who are not necessarily interested in doing ethnoprimatology, right? And that's fine. But I guess the thing that many of us will argue is that it, you know, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find a primate population that has not been subjected to some type of human influence, whether that has a long history or a much more recent history. And if that's the case, we have to be thinking about the ways in which humans are indeed part of their ecologies. And that's where we can rely on some of our colleagues in anthropology that have for quite some time been talking about the ways in which humans have often been assumed to be outside of nature, right, as opposed to within it and part of ecosystems and that we share spaces with other animals, right? Because that impacts the way that they think about their research and what their research data means, but then also the ways in which they interface with people in and around their field sites, which I think is also an important dimension of contemporary primatology, and I would argue ethically engaged primatology as well. Thank you for that. And as Chris mentioned as the setup to that question, that you have two different field sites, one in Florida, which most people are like, what? What are you doing in Florida <laughs> studying primates? <laughs> and then the other in Indonesia. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about those two sites and what you're doing similarly and different between the two. So most of my work has been in Indonesia. I started off in central Sulawesi, and that's where I did my dissertation work. And since that time, I have moved to a site in the southern area of the island with a 
closely related species and similar topics, human-macaque interface. But the difference that I'm dealing with now at my current site is at the my dissertation site, it was a more so looking at the human primate interface at the forest farm edge and in a protected area. So there's a lot of different issues at play there, right? At my current site, I have kind of two sites embedded within that area, and one is still focusing on kind of overlapping resource use between people and primates at the forest farm edge. But the other site is in a protected area again, but the difference here is that we're starting to see an emerging interface that it's very common in what we see in tourist sites, but this is not really about tourism per se. It's just about the primates making themselves visually available to people passing through the national park. These aren't people coming to the national park to kind of hang out. They're just passing through because that's the only way to get from point A to point B. And that's resulted in these different types of interactions between people and the resident macaques there. And so that's what we've been examining for the last five years or so. The Florida example is, you know, I, yeah, I get the, I always love telling people about that work because, yeah, like you said, Kara, like the initial reaction is, like, huh? Right. But then I remind people that, you know, Florida is a very interesting place ecologically. You know, <laughs> you can find all sorts of animals that you don't necessarily expect to be um, in the United States in Florida. So, yeah, this is a site that I first started working at back in 2012 in conjunction with a few other anthropologists and also one of my former graduate students. So essentially what we were interested in looking at there is, is again, looking at the human primate interface. This is very much a tourism setting. Right. So people are coming to the park to recreate you know, be along the river and experience uh, the landscape. But part of that landscape includes feral rhesus macaques, which of course are not native to the United States. And so we were interested in examining how the, the macaques themselves are able to subsist in that area, which was a, a bit different from the work that I'm doing in Sulawesi because that is their native habitat in Sulawesi. So it was trying to understand behavioral flexibility on the part of the rhesus macaque, which is not unexpected because they probably would rule the world if humans didn't ever evolve. <laughs> so looking at that and then also the ways in which, you know, people interface with them, right? So we were doing kind of human behavior follows as well, like watching the boats interact with them and stuff. And it's very, very interesting because there's different narratives at play, right? It's kind of like the Department of Environmental Protection and the park staff are thinking, oh, this is an invasive exotic species, you know, we got to get rid of them. Whereas a lot of the work that some of my cultural anthropology colleagues did at the site, and then also just kind of informal conversations we had with local folks was, well, yeah, you know, they're just a natural part of this ecology, right? Like they've been living here for decades, right? So they almost become naturalized in their worldview. And so, you know, there you have this distinction between, you know, what's considered ecologically natural, but then also kind of like local people's understanding of what counts as natural has been very fascinating. I actually haven't done work there in a while. It was a little difficult for me to manage both Indonesia and Florida, but I certainly stay current on what's happening there. There's another group of researchers from the University of Florida who who picked up research, although I would say their angle is a little different. They're coming at it from wildlife management perspective, so a little different. So similar in many ways, but but also quite different in terms of the species and the context. So the macaques in Florida are a bit like Pablo Escobar's hippos in, in a way. They've sort of taken over and become their own tourist attraction, maybe less cocaine and, and attacking. Although... <laughs> There was just a news story yesterday of some macaque biting a child who went into someone's emotional support pin who also used the animal in stripping. It's a crazy story. The reason I bring it up 
is because it sort of brings up some of the issues here, which are the pet trade, the consequences of the pet trade, how some of these invasive species become invasive species, and then once they've been there for a few decades, you know, like what role do, do they play? So I'm sort of curious from your perspective, and I think that unless you've traveled to some of the countries that you have, we don't quite understand what it looks like on the ground. As a person who doesn't generally work in other countries with a lot of non-human primates, I used to think they must be gregariously running through the streets, right? Um, maybe like temple monkeys or something. But when I visited Madagascar, I was surprised to find the few lemurs that they had on protected sites. And even those protected sites just had a few individuals. And we talked to Pat Wright a little bit about this a year or two ago. There's a tension, right, between conservation and tourism. And it's not clear that tourism necessarily benefits the sustainability of the primates. I'm sort of curious where you fall and, and what you found with the species you work with. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's definitely a tension there also because and we're certainly many countries and places are experiencing it currently because of the travel restrictions due to the pandemic. You know, tourism is such a fickle industry. And so when you have communities that are or even countries for that matter, that are relying heavily on tourist dollars as part of their GDP, you see major impact. So like maybe you guys saw one video that went viral from Thailand, where it was basically very early on in the pandemic, where these groups of long-tail macaques, like huge groups that were so accustomed, almost like very much reliant on human food, of course, weren't getting that food anymore because of the travel restrictions. And so there was like this huge brawl that occurred in the middle of the street, right? Where all of a sudden high, high levels of competition for any bits of pieces of food that that's available, right? So then the question becomes, okay, what happens when these animals become completely reliant on human food sources, right? That's certainly a concern. You know, in Florida, what's so interesting is that what our project showed actually because it was very much like the park was thinking oh they're you know they're just being fed all the time it's human food that they're relying on and what you found that they're actually provisioning by boaters right that's how they were provisioning people boating up and down the river and then tossing food to the monkeys on the river's edge but you know that we kind of considered it like more like dessert if you will right i mean they had basically figured out what to forage on in florida now again if if from an ecological perspective, though, then you could ask the question, oh, well, are they then outcompeting other native wildlife for those kinds of resources? And that's a question that still needs to be fully answered. You know, one of the things we're dealing with at my current site in Sulawesi, Indonesia, once primates have the taste for human food and know that they can get it, they're going to try and go for that, right? So it's hard if you're trying to manage that situation, then it's easier, right, to try and manage human behavior as opposed to primate behavior. So trying to force them to go back into the forest as opposed to hanging on the road waiting for people to toss them food, right, is trying to work with people to change their behavior. But one of the problems is that, you know, when you try and say to folks, oh, well, please don't provision them because, you know, A, People food is not good for them. And B, you know, this is an endangered species because it is the species I'm working with now, Makaka Maura. But people say, well, but but I go to Bali and, and I can do it there. Why can't I do it here? Right. So then the problem becomes when you have these models around the world where it's deemed acceptable. Right. Then it becomes difficult to try and manage these kinds of situations elsewhere. Right. And this is where primatologists specifically have to come into play. I mean, primatology 
early on was like a lot of researchers provisioned their animals, right? It was an easy way to get close access to them to, to actually make observations. Now, today's primatology, it's not certainly not as common as it was before. But then we start thinking about one of the key things that we do to be able to make observations in the first place, which is habituation, right? Getting primates accustomed to, to human presence, right? So then we have to think about all of these kinds of issues when they are not only interfacing with researchers, but then also other groups of people, right? What that means for their longevity and their you know, conservation status moving forward. I want to uh, dive into that just a second. For the longest time, I pointed out like, oh, look at these earlier examples of primatology. What are they doing wrong? And students will be like, oh, they're provisioning. And I go, yes, we don't do that now anymore, right? But then when we think about like this context of humans and non-human primates forever and how we all eat and get food back and forth, I started thinking like, you know, provisioning, that's just the recent version of us reifying what is natural as things that humans don't do right? Mm-hmm. Humans have always been involved. So so what do you do? Do you provision? Like, what does fieldwork look like for you? I'm, I'm really curious how you stand on that. In Florida, we didn't. And then at my dissertation site, we didn't. It certainly would have helped <laughs> with the habituation process. But again, we chose not to. And also, this was a site where they were foraging in, in agricultural land. And, and that was already a little bit tricky. The community was a little nervous that by following them, they would be more likely to come into the garden. So we already had to kind of navigate that tension there. At the current site where I work at, when I first started working there, the park itself was doing some provisioning, like basically to do media things. So, you know, in the beginning, I participated in that. I mean, I didn't do it myself, but the park was doing it so that it was like easy to get group counts and stuff like that. And then in some other research projects that have been done there, they've used baited traps to get them to do certain things, right? And that was part of the kind of the research protocol, right? But now, you know, over the years, it's just been kind of like, this is maybe not something we want to do anymore. And so I've encouraged the park as much as I can to say, please don't provision them, right? Like if if people want to go see them, like take them into the forest, right? And the issue is, of course, they want to promote the park. And so if they have media campaigns come all the way from Jakarta, these aren't forest, these aren't field people. These are people like, that just want to see the monkeys and get some video footage and move on their way, right? So there are multiple interests at play, right, that make it difficult. You know, I try and emphasize that when other people see you provisioning them, it's hard to then tell those other people that they shouldn't, right? (laughs) But at the same time, there are other sites. I've dealt with it, my own personal conflict. Two years ago, uh, back in 2018, I was finally able to go to Japan, which was like so amazing. It had been on my list for many, many years. And of course, I visited the Japanese macaque sites, right? I mean, that was like a huge draw for me. And at both of the sites that I visited, there was provisioning. I didn't engage in it, but, you know, the park did. And I've thought about it since. Like, I didn't have any conflict with that, right? Of course, the sites in Japan are differentially managed compared to other areas, right? So they strategically have the park staff provision so that the monkeys themselves don't then crowd around the visitors. Like the monkeys are smart enough to know, okay, who's going to provision me and who doesn't, right? And so that makes the interfacing that happens at these sites much, much different compared to, for example, sites in Indonesia and Bali and Thailand, where you've got monkeys jumping on everybody because everybody has the access to these foods and everybody's giving it to them, right? 
I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because that is something that I've grappled with. Why was it okay for me to visit these sites and support, you know, technically support these sites and the ways in which they are encouraging humans interfacing with wildlife? And yet then at my site being like, please stop provisioning these animals, right? So like, that's a disconnect that I guess I have to grapple with, right? But it's also, like you said, very context specific. So I feel like there's never going to be a blanket policy that works for every single primatological site. That's not to say there isn't grappling to be done, yeah. but also to say, yeah. don't go hard on yourself. <laughs> you know, <this> <laughs> no, no, I know. You're so right, Kara. It's totally context dependent, but it does make me pause, right? And think about why is it okay in one setting and not another? And that's the same thing that, for example, some of the local folks in Sulawesi, again, these aren't tourists, really. They're people traveling from point A to point B, and they realize that if they throw their chips out the window, they can get a picture with a monkey. That's exciting to them, right? When they go to Bali, nobody challenges them, right? Trying to understand other people's perceptions have made me think more about the kinds of context in which I've been a part of this as well. So you've been kind of hitting on all of these things throughout all of our questions, but I want to bring it back to the book because that's, you know, the big thing we want to promote and and get you to talk about as well. What I would like to hear is kind of who you wrote this for and what you hope they Mm -hmm. gain from it. And I think a lot of it is... the greater just need to take in conservation efforts and how to make those long lasting and to stop with these silos of like mm-hmm. biological anthropology and then primatology. And then way over here is, you know, cultural anthropology and never the two shall meet. I, I feel mm-hmm. like those are some of the big themes. What do you think were the big takeaways from this book and who do you want to be taking those messages? It's funny, the publishers chose the smallest font possible. So in many ways, I feel like it's not going to be those of us that can't read very well that are readers, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many people have been like, next time it's printed, could you ask them to increase the font size? And I agree with that. (laughs) But that aside, I mean, honestly, it was my first time writing a book like that. And I remember early on being like, am I writing this okay? Because I was trying to write obviously in a scholarly fashion, but also maybe insert some humor because who doesn't like a little humor? And then also in maybe the narrative in a little bit more accessible way. And so I hope that has been successful. But I think, I guess in doing that, the goal was to invite and make it attractive to not only students, because I know a lot of people are using it in their courses, which I'm so glad to hear. And some people have given me feedback that students found it accessible and and interesting, which is fantastic. But then also obviously reach our peers, right? Scholars, right? Both emerging and seasoned, if you will, right? As a way to maybe rethink how they think about primatology. So that's been the audience per se. And I, I hope it's not just primatologists reading it, right? Because I think particularly the contextual background in anthropology gives people maybe if they don't have a good sense of why is primatology even in anthropology, right? That that would broaden the perspective there, but then also facilitate exchanges, not just primatologists reaching out to other anthropologists, but then also other anthropologists seeing why it might be useful to interact with, you know, primatologists in their departments or whatnot. I thought it did a great job of giving some of the history of bioanth and primatology, uh, which I had not assigned in other articles or books. So thank you for saving me in my (laughs) professorial side there. And I also think you did a good job of hitting the mark because I found that this should be read by all 
poor field anthropologist. It did make a good case. And I thought you brought that up nicely, right? Like some of us who are bioants who have long read primatology haven't really thought about that question in a while. But for outsiders, and I think for students, uh, and I hear this by students coming in who are like, I don't care about monkeys. I don't know why I have to read them. And I'm aghast. I'm like, <gasps> so I thought you did a nice job of making the case that I think we do need to make again every once in a while to refresh everyone's memories and then provide that update. So I'm curious as, well, there are two things. One, the font size may be too small, but you got a great cover. <laughs> Michelle Besenson gave yeah. you a nice cover. So we wanted to ask you how you scored uh, an awesome book cover for our, yeah. <laughs> our own future book writing ventures. Sure. Yeah. I mean, when I first, you know, agreed to do the book and was thinking about it, actually it was Michelle herself bless her heart, um, who offered, you know, this is something that she enjoys doing and, and obviously excels at. So, and I thought, well, fantastic, because otherwise, I mean, I have lots of really great photographic images from my field site and stuff that would have kind of captured the essence of what the book was about. But when a talented artist who also knows about the research offers, obviously you don't turn that down. So that was fantastic. And so, you know, we worked together in terms of how it kind of came to be. The primate that sits at the forefront of the image is my favorite more macaque. Um, his name is Jaya, and I have lots of great images of him. This one was actually photographed by a colleague of mine. But so I gave Michelle a few kind of inspirational photos that kind of capture like the human primate interface. And she just rendered them so beautifully in terms of the crop rating one. So that there's the one where the monkeys are eating the cacao pods and feeding on that. And she even captured it down to the T of there. I had an image where basically the image was showing the difference between the ways in which monkeys extract cacao pods and how you can tell the difference. Because you often are not seeing them do it, you're seeing the remains of it. And because the macaques will strip the pods off and you can see the long strip versus a rat that just kind of gnaws at it, right? And see, these are the things that you need to look for if you're trying to measure impacts of different wildlife species. And she even captured that down to the T, which is just so cool. So yeah, so the the essence of it is to kind of capture um, many spaces in which people and primates interface, right? And to showcase the importance of those, but also in many cases, the ubiquity of those kinds of settings as well um, worldwide. There are not enough books out there written by folks who are trying to tailor messages for non-academics or academics. And when we do write books, we often fail to take into account sort of the rest of the package. And as someone mm -hmm. who came from the music industry staring at album covers, I can definitely appreciate that you thought that through. And also, having just submitted a book to Rutledge, they just gave me oh. a couple uh, accounts that they have licenses for, and I had to go scrolling through finding a picture. So I'm very jealous that you had something tailor-made for your project, because the best picture they found, they were like, oh, sorry can't actually use that one. Try again. I was like, no. Yeah. So the cover is only on the paperback, which is fine. But when I got the hardcover, I was like, what is this? No, the expensive <laughs> one doesn't have the great art. Exactly. So that was a little disappointing, I have to admit. I would go to stores yeah. with like pictures of the cover and tape it on to those hardbacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess their rationale is that the hardbacks are the ones that go to the libraries usually. And so it gets covered anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So you have this book out and I'm sure things have basically been shut down, at least fieldwork wise for you because of COVID. Yeah. As things start opening up a little bit here and there, kind of what's next for you? What do you have on the horizon? 
Yeah, I'm so eager to go back. Yeah, it's been two years. I usually go to Indonesia every year. I'm definitely going through withdrawal, if you will. At the same time, you know, certainly last year was like, even if it was open, I'm not sure it would have been smart to travel for a number of reasons. But yeah, so I have a few projects that are backlogged because of the pandemic. So one that I'm super excited about that I was able to get a little bit of funding for is to run a field workshop in Sulawesi at my site for university students at the university in South Sulawesi in Makassar. So my research collaborator, who I've worked with since 2006, really, who's fantastic, he's a forest ecologist, but again, he's not a primatologist, so he's had great contributions in terms of kind of the ecological components, for sure. But I've always wanted to include more Indonesian students in my projects. But because many of his students are like, I don't want to follow stuff. I just want to measure the trees, right? It's been hard to kind of attract some students. But in the last few years, there have been more and more students that are interested. And so they try and you know latch onto me while I'm there. And I realized the university just doesn't have the training. They don't have the courses and they don't have like a primatologist, you know, as part of their faculty who are trained in the methods. And so I was hoping to begin movement towards helping them maybe build that. So that would be for local university students. And uh, so hopefully I'll be able to do that this summer. It's looking like that is one project that I will be able to do. Another one that is backlog is kind of related to that. I got some funding from Asian Network, which supports a student faculty fellows program where I would bring three undergraduates from here, from SDSU to Indonesia for kind of an immersive fieldwork experience. And so this would be a chance for undergraduate students. I mostly take graduate students to Indonesia. I have taken a couple of undergrads before. So this would be a chance for undergrads to kind of learn more about the topic and an issue and get skills and, you know, just kind of be a part of a kind of a, a different cultural setting and to learn about research. So not sure if that's possible in the current state, given what they're offering in terms of visas at this point. And so then aside from kind of student-based things, I do have a couple of grants pending right now, kind of being in the process of being reviewed to initiate more field-based research. So we've done some work looking at the ways in which this new emerging interface has affected the behavior of the macaques at our site, and we're hoping to build on that. So we have a recent paper that came out in Scientific Reports that looked at the ways in which this human interface and the provisioning has affected the kind of the social network, the social cohesion of the group. And so we're looking to build on that work, asking questions about impacts on behavior, and not only within our main social group, but other social groups that are now descending to the road to get access to these provisions. So it's becoming a population-wide issue that we want to look at. So we're hoping to do that. And I'm not sure if this summer is going to be possible, but we'll see because I have a couple of master's students who are hoping to be a part of that. And then lastly, I guess I would say one of the goals that I also had, I was actually on sabbatical during 2019, 2020, which, and then of course the pandemic hit, which meant I got no research done. And you guys know, like these sabbaticals are so precious. And so it was really disappointing to not have any field research time. But anyway, one of my goals also was to travel to Mexico to maybe build a new project with one of my colleagues, Juan Carlos Sirio Silva, 
who we have a kind of an MOU between our institutions and we're hoping to kind of um, build more projects because he has many students that are interested in kind of ethnoclimatology and that kind of stuff. And Mexico is a very smart place for me to also partner with, not only given our proximity to the border, but then just also ease of travel and those kinds of things for students if they can't go all the way to Indonesia. So that has also been backlogged because of travel restrictions, but I'm hoping to be able to maybe go sometime this coming spring to think about new projects for the future there. Yeah, so I'm excited, hoping to go back to the field soon. Awesome. Well, before I forget, I want to mention that I said something about birding earlier. That idea was stolen from Sherry Alexander. I should give credit in case she listens to this, (laughs) which she probably will. But it came directly out of reading your book and talking to her about ideas for research in places where they don't have primates. So there you go. Maybe that one will actually happen. But Speaking not of primates, what else do you do, Erin? What I say, like, it's like, if I'm not in the field and I'm not teaching, then I'm dancing. So dance is my other passion. I learned dance late in life. I didn't actually start taking like full-fledged classes until I was an undergraduate. And I was like, why didn't I do this way earlier? Regardless, it has remained. So it wasn't something I pursued as a career necessarily, but it is something that um, provides me a lot of joy. And it's basically my way of physical activity exercise because I'm not much of a gym person, but also stress relief. So it makes my soul alive and well, as I like to say. That's been really important in my life too. Do you have a particular kind of dance that you like? So uh, I'm pretty equal opportunity when it comes to dance. I like many, many genres, but the ones I do probably the most are hip hop, contemporary, which is kind of a lyrical, kind of sometimes people refer to as modern And more recently, I've been doing heels classes, which it is what it sounds like. You're wearing heels, which makes it more challenging. And heels classes can involve um, technique in burlesque and hip hop and jazz funk. Am I remembering correctly? And so please yell at me if I am wrong. But I feel like you, Michelle Bazanson and Julian Rutherford often go on like fluvog shopping hunts, like during conferences. Am I crazy putting you in that group? (laughs) <laughs> no, yeah, that was a tradition. Yeah, Katie McKinnon as well. And sometimes we'd have other folks that were like, we're coming too." you know, yeah, it definitely was a tradition for many years. It, it broke my bank. So I retracted myself <laughs> from because <laughs> they're not cheap. I refuse to even ever try on a pair because of the price. Yeah. I know you get sucked in. I think the last one I went to, I indulged Michelle and Allison, one of her former students, who's a PhD student now. Uh, I forget, maybe it was in AAA in Vancouver, but I indulged them and went along. But I, I had already said, I'm not getting sucked into anything. And I was really good. I didn't. I didn't get sucked in. I didn't find a pair. I think the last pair I bought was at the AABAs in um, New Orleans. So I might be due for a pair, actually. <laughs> But not every year, not every year. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute, is this the right conversation? My wife is a dancer and inherited a bunch of flu bogs. So I was like, wait a minute, what a weird coincidence. Yeah, she inherited a bunch of flu bogs from someone who can no longer wear them. So she put some on that had some really crazy heels for her Halloween costume. And then she was for the rest of the, the evening after wearing them. Yeah. They're such unique designs. I actually, some of the ones that I have, I don't wear very much because they're so unique. So they've actually held up pretty well, right? So that's kind of a nice thing. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We really, really enjoyed the chat. 